I'm going to die soon. And nobody will mourn my death. Unless I make them. I've locked up Jewish elders from all over Israel inside the Hippodrome at Jericho. Upon my death, they are to be executed. There will be mourning at my death after all. Have you ever wondered if you're crazy? If you were, how would you even know? <laughs> you couldn't trust your own opinion. You couldn't trust your closest friends. Your world could be completely upside down, but it would seem absolutely normal to you. I no longer wonder if I'm crazy. At 25 years of age, I was appointed governor of Galilee. I kept the peace and collected taxes, but the Jews hated my brutality. I was named king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. They wanted someone to control the country of Judea in the name of Rome. I became fabulously wealthy during my reign as king, but nobody will remember that. There have been many fabulously wealthy men in history. I will be remembered for thousands of years because of my building projects. And there were many of them, some of which would have been enough to cement my place in history, each by themselves. But my favorite project was the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where the temple was located. It exists in modern times and is the focal point of Jerusalem for many people. I literally cut off a mountaintop and flipped it over to make a huge flat platform that became the Temple Mount that you still see today. Some of the stones were as big as railroad cars and are cut perfectly level. Part of the trial of Jesus will take place on the Temple Mount some 30 years after my death. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, none of these projects was cheap. So the people of Judea had to pay taxes to make them happen. But enough about me. <clears throat> Let's talk about that baby, baby Jesus. A caravan from Babylon arrived at my palace in Jerusalem. Now, this was no ordinary caravan. It carried magi from Babylon who were famous for their magic and astronomy and wisdom. A small army protected them and their riches, so it was clearly a wealthy royal group of individuals. They had already stopped by my palaces in Machiris, Masada, and Jericho, looking for me. I had hoped that these men were wanting to sign a trade agreement. I immediately brought them into my court. And without so much as a hello, they asked about the location of this newly born king of the Jews. They said they had seen his star rise. They wanted to find him. They wanted to worship him. I leave the room to have a chat with my advisors. The Bible says I was disturbed by this and all of Jerusalem with me. Oh, I was disturbed, all right. I was the king of the Jews and they wanted me to help them find my replacement? <laughs> I was a renowned mass murderer. Murder was my favorite political tool. The city of Jerusalem trembled to think how I would react. <laughs> I considered wiping out the caravan of Magi. Disrespect and impudence must be extinguished. 
I bring the Jewish leaders and teachers together to ask about this king, this Messiah, and where he will be born. Well, they immediately know of a prophecy saying, he will be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Have you been to Bethlehem? <laughs> this, this entourage in Bethlehem. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to even ponder. <laughs> but I hatch a new scheme. I return to the Magi, and I inform them that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, only, only six miles away. I humbly ask them to find the Messiah using their wisdom, and I beg them to come and tell me where the Messiah is located so that I may worship him too. We talk about the star and the signs they've seen, and I gather that the Messiah has been born within the last year or so, maybe even more recently. Not a specific target, but a target all the same. Now, if I take an army to Bethlehem, the Messiah's followers will hear all about it and escape. Instead, when the Magi return with their information, I will take a small group of soldiers in the night and capture him. Or Maybe I'll send an assassin. I've done that often enough. Although, I could always change my mind. So many alternatives to rid myself of yet another potential rival. I am the king of the Jews. You think that's going to change because of some baby born in Bethlehem? <gasps> yeah, that's crazy. Crazy King Herod. Man, that guy did a good job. Uh, I want to start by talking about an idea uh, that you see present in a lot of movies and a lot of stories. It's called a theme. And a theme is an overarching idea that kind of sums up all the little bits and pieces into the larger whole. And to kind of get our minds thinking on the same page, I'm going to show you some just some movie slides or pictures, and, and we'll talk quickly about the theme. Most of these you'll probably know. Uh, if you have kids, you certainly know this first one here behind me. And uh, it is not that slide, not that slide. Wait, it's always the anticipation that kills. And um, there we go. All right, this one here, Frozen. So I would say that a good overall theme of the movie Frozen, if you haven't seen that one, is this idea that love conquers all, that love can thaw a frozen heart, and it ends in this big climactic moment of, you know, one sister saving the other one. And so love conquers all would be a good theme of Frozen. Uh, this next one's one of my favorites of, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever watched the movies or read the books, but it's fantastic, Lord of the Rings. Uh, huge book, tons of themes, but one of the things that you see consistently throughout it is this idea of sacrifice specifically and, the, you know, also in the climactic moment, Frodo and Sam are clowning up the mountain, and they're going to throw the ring into the lava, and they're like sacrificing for one another, and, and all of these kind of things for the greater good, and so sacrifice is a key theme of that movie, or those stories. Uh, this next was probably my all-time favorite, is old Rocky, right? And this was specifically Rocky IV against Ivan Drago, you know, the big Russian guy, and so that, that 
theme would be perseverance because it doesn't matter how many times Rocky gets punched in the face, he can still yell, Adrian. And so, like, it's amazing how he can do that. And the last one here is just for, really, I'm just going to say for all the guys, but, but the guys and girls, uh, if you have not been forced to watch one of these movies here, this is the Hallmark Channel, I'm just going to sum up basically every theme of those movies, which is, uh, usually a big city girl rekindles the flame with a small town boy after realizing that she can have both her big city job and the love of her life that probably owns a Christmas tree farm and or an old inn that will probably need her help saving. But by saving the farm in or small town, she learns that she is really saving herself and something about Christmas. So anyway, I just summed up about 120 movies. It's just for you. Saved you a lot of time. You're welcome. You can take up a hobby, knitting, carving wood, whatever. Anyway, well... Themes are, are everywhere, and in this series, we've had a theme of, do you see what I see? And of course, we're taking that from the Christmas song, but specifically, we're trying to look at Christmas, ourselves, the grander story that we're a part of, uh, through the eyes of Jesus, uh, through the eyes of God, and how God, I think, was kind of trying to get us to see, do you see what I see? Do you see your circumstances? And so for the First week, it was just about we're all a part of this larger story. It's not just about us. And then last week is about how God will use our pain and suffering to pave a way when we step into his story and not try to just live out our own life through our story. And so we've kind of summed it up this way, probably a theme of the series, is that the Bible is God's true story. It's the true story given to us to understand himself, ourselves, and the world in which we exist. And I want to kind of key on that idea of stories because stories are not new. They are something that humans have used since the beginning of recorded history. That we use stories all the time to talk out themes that, that are important to us. The battle for good and evil, the, you know, the themes of love, the themes of family, the themes of death and loss and heartache. All of these things are worked out usually in stories. And it's not new to humanity. Every culture has their own story. And so when we look at the Bible, we are looking at God's story, and we can pick out different themes from God's story. And this is actually a really good practice as a Bible-reading Christian to learn not just how to look at the small bit of what you're reading. It's kind of what we were trying to do in this last series um, a few weeks ago, but, but looking at the Bible both in the small, but sometimes scaling out and looking at the themes that the Bible is trying to talk about because the Bible is one unified story that all leads to Jesus. And so some of those, you know, and look, I think even in our own life, to just drive this home for a minute, I think even our own life can have a theme sometimes if you, if you think about it. It's good to try to get a 35,000 foot view. Like maybe the theme of your life is you have overcome some mistakes. That's awesome. But also maybe a theme in our life is that we keep making the same mistakes. Maybe that's the theme. Or maybe a theme in your life is that you keep getting hurt by people. Or maybe the theme is you just keep hurting people. And so I think it's important to judge our theme and, and our story and then, of course, bring it over to Scripture and make sure that we are trying to live as close to the themes in the story of the Bible. And the Bible has all sorts of themes running through it. A theme of redemption, sacrifice, justice, sanctification, righteousness, etc. But one major theme that we see all throughout Scripture is the idea that God is our king. That God is our king. And, and we see this summed up in the greatest way in Revelation 19, 16. At the very end of the book, 
we see, and it says, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is over everything. So that means that if God is king, then he must be followed. And so the theme that I want to try to break down for us today is this theme that I'm calling king or kill. King or kill. And and what I mean by that is that when someone claims to be a king over you, you either have to be subject to their rule or you must revolt and try to tear down their authority. Now, we see this in a, you know, non devastating way oftentimes with like teenagers, right? All throughout your child's life, you are, in some sense, you are king over them. You're making all of their decisions. You're deciding where they can go, who they can go with, who they can talk to, what they need to think, what they need to learn, all of these things. And then one day, those little brats wake up and say, nope, not today. And, and what is actually happening? They're, they're trying to say, I want to be the new king over me. Like, I don't think they're not trying to take over your family, but it is a hostile takeover of their own life. And that's what we then would call that teenage rebellion, right? Y'all remember that. I want to be king. But let's think a little bit broader. If someone were to come into our city and by force and say, I'm the new king here, you can't just like go, ah, whatever. It's not an ah, whatever statement. It's either like, okay, we're going to now listen to this dude or we're picking up axes and pitchforks, or today it would be guns. Obviously, it would be guns today. But whatever we're doing, we're not listening to you. Like we're, we're not going to sit back and just make this okay. And so by someone proclaiming to be king, you have to either say, I'm going to subject myself to that, or you're going to have to destroy their authority over you. And so what the Bible does is the Bible opens with this idea as God as a creator king. And out of nothing, he, he speaks and it is done. He creates the world and, and everything in it. And then on, on the last day, on the sixth day, he, he comes and out of the dirt, out of the mud, out of the earth, he creates this creature. He creates these beings and he, and he calls them his image bearers. He creates humanity, Adam and Eve, and he, and he creates them to, to bear his image back off into the world, and that's a big deal. That's why, look, that's why you think you're better than a squirrel. Like, nobody had a squirrel funeral the last time you ran over one. Well, why? Or even a deer funeral. What were you? You were mad because it broke your car, but you weren't upset. It's a living thing. You're a living thing. There should be all equal equivalence, right? But no, why are you and I different? Well, it's because we bear the image of God. He breathed that life into our lungs, which, of course, then, is a whole other thing that we could go on. And that's why we're supposed to love our neighbor, even love our enemy. Why? Because even our enemy bears the image of God, too. They might not be living in it, but we're called to love them anyway. And that's tough. That is not easy. That's a whole other thing, though. So God goes and he creates this new thing, these image-bearing humans, and he sets them into the garden. You know the story. They're living in the garden, and God invites them to, begin, to continue his, his creation. And when I, when I, what I mean by that is God didn't just create it all. He created the garden, but I, I'm under the impression that God wanted us as humans to then go out and help and continue, not because he's incapable, but because God has always wanted to partner with us. That's why he created us. That's why he invited Adam to go and name the animals. Could he have named a tiger? I think so. I believe it. I mean, he made it. I don't think he was like, I don't know what to call this thing, you know? A tigger? I don't know. What? No, I don't know. No, no, tiger. And that, like Adam wasn't just the genius there. No, God could have done it himself, right? And so 
God invited Adam and Eve into this creation project, right? And then what happens? Authority is questioned. And that's where we start reading in Genesis 3. Now, this serpent, the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat any tree in the garden? I just want to say something. God is the creator, meaning he's creative and he's not a liar. The enemy is a liar, but he's not creative. And what I mean by that is he's telling the same lies. That, that, that lie, in, in verse one, did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really tell you? Does the Bible really mean? Is this really what you should be doing? It's, it's the same question, man. It's the same question. He's not, he's, not, he's not that original. You can eat from any tree of the garden. The woman answered him. She should have just shut it down, but she, she answered him. He said, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, but about the fruit in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And the answer, serpent, and the serpent answered, no, 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 you will not die. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows, and this is the great lie, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like who? God, who is the king. You will be like the king. Oh, you can be your own king. And all you have to do is choose to decide what is good and evil for yourself. Now, I just want to let's scale way back. Let's just look at human history. Let's look at our own current circumstances. That's easy enough. Do you realize that most of the political drama that we have existing in our culture right now comes down to how do we define what is good and evil? Like we're still trying to do it. Like all these thousands of years later, and here's what human history teaches us, we're terrible at it. Because usually what I think is good will only be good for me, regardless if it's good for you or not. That's why marriages break down. That's why families break down. That's why friendships break down. Because generally, almost always, because when I'm king, I'm going to lead for me and mine. And when it comes down to what's good for me or you, I will choose me every time. And so it's the same drama. I think that's why, look, it's why sometimes, I know if, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible or if you haven't learned how to read it or if it, you know, maybe you're young, you're like, man, this thing feels like an ancient book. Bro, you don't know. Like, listen, I, the Bible is full of so many deep concepts that, look, it's not just me because I'm a pastor. It's not just a bunch of Christians. Like, a lot of the wider world is waking up to realize, like, oh, this is what the Bible's talking about here. We've just been reading it poorly all this time. Like, like it, it answers so many things about us in our life. And so in the very beginning of the Bible, we see this moment where we as humans started and have continued to try to be king. And that's what they took. But if you're not going to serve the king, then you must kill the king. Now, of course, Adam and Eve could not go kill God. But what they did do, though, is they began to kill the purposes and the direction and the favor and the presence of God in the life. Not Right? Because what happens, they were, they were kicked out of the garden. They were expelled out from the place that God had designed for them where his presence resided. And thus our problems start. But don't worry, the killing didn't stop there. It was only just starting. Because then we read in the very next chapter, we see Cain and Abel, the, the first two offspring of humans, the sons of Adam and Eve, and, and they come and they bring sacrifices. And Abel brings a, a good first fruit sacrifice to the Lord with a good heart. But Cain just 
He just brings a sacrifice, not a good sacrifice, a sacrifice. And so God looks upon favor upon, uh, with favor upon Abel and, and disdain with, with Cain because he sees Cain's heart. And so Cain has this moment where he's like, he's beginning to wrestle. What is good for me in this moment? Because I'm a king now. I can decide what is good or what is wrong. And God even warns him in Genesis 4, verse 7. He says, if you do what is right, Cain, not what you, what you think is right, but what I tell you is right, Cain, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. There's the tiger. There it is. There's the lion. There's the wild beast of chaos and sin. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain, but Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So by becoming king, Adam and Eve destroyed the presence of God. Cain kills his brother in the sight of God. And humanity has had that bad boy on the repeat cycle ever since. Y'all remember, this is showing my age, y'all remember CDs when it would skip? Or maybe I should even go back. Some of y'all remember records. Y'all remember those things? It would skip, bop, bop, bop. That's, that's human history. Just look at it, look at it, and to pull it close. That's often our life. Like that's the greater theme sometimes in our life is not so much saved by grace, hanging on by the skin of our teeth because of grace, because we keep repeating the same mistakes, because we keep trying to be king or queen. Obviously, I'm saying king, but you know, y'all get it. Ruler, y'all get it. All right, so what we learn in scripture very early is this, that you either make God king or you will try to kill his purposes in your life. That's what this theme is trying to tell us. And there's so many more examples we could talk about. I mean, an easy example to look at is like, remember Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament, like the nation of Israel wanted a king. God was like, that's a bad idea. Don't get a king. They're like, we want a king anyway because we want to be able to see our king. God's like, I'm your king, but whatever. I'll give you a king and I'll give you exactly what you want. And they, they did. He was big and tall and handsome and burly and he can go off and attack and save them. And so God gave him Saul. And for a brief moment, Saul was like following the real king. But then Saul was like, wait, I literally am a king. I'm not going to follow anybody but me because I'm the king. So he begins to follow himself and his own desires. And then God, the Bible says the spirit leaves him. And so then God's spirit goes and rests on somebody else, a.k.a. David. And what does then Saul try to do? If you're king, you can't have anybody threatening you, you being king. And so you will then kill the thing that God is trying to purpose in around your life. And so what does he spend the rest of his career doing? Trying to kill David, his man. Why? Just for the mere purpose because he was listening to the same lie that the enemy had told Adam and Eve. That if you get rid of this, you can remain king, Saul. But don't worry. Don't worry. It's easy to say like, oh man, David's the hero. Well, yeah, David did a lot of awesome things. I mean, Jesus comes from the line of David. But let's not forget though that what happened when David also decided, hey, I'm the king. I can do what I want. I can determine right and wrong. And what I think is right right now is Bathsheba is right. And she needs to be right now in my house. And whenever her husband comes home because she finds out she's pregnant, David can't get the guy because he's such a good dude to listen to his skeeving, conniving plan. And so what does David have to do when well, he's the king? He does what kings always do. And he kills the purpose of God. And he kills Uriah. Because of what kings do. That's what earthly kings do. It's not what the heavenly king does. That brings us to Herod, king of the Jews. I'm not going to share it all here because it's a little unfamily friendly. 
But if you want some interesting, rainy Sunday afternoon reading, you need to go read about Herod. Just Google Herod the Great, and it's nuts. Don't read it out loud to your kids. Even the way he died is nuts. It was a horrendous, awful death, of which he obviously very much deserved. But man, it was a wild, wild life. Uh, one of the highlights, some of the highlights are is he was extremely wealthy. He was extremely brutal. Uh, killed two of his own sons because they threatened his rule. You think your family Christmases are awkward. At least you're not like stabbing your boys because they're trying to take the head of the table, eh, Dad? This is my seat. This is my house, right? Well, Herod took it quite literally. It was his house, and he had them done away with. So now Herod, how, how he got king, as we kind of found out in the video, he was set up as kind of a, a proxy king under Caesar. Rome was over the entire area, and what they would often do is they would pick uh, usually a pretty ruthless leader who would hold on, hold on to an area and keep it under Roman rule because mostly what Rome wanted was taxes. And so the people were just taxed to death because they were taxed for the proxy king, then they were taxed for Caesar. That's why, obviously, people hate, that's why like, when we hear about Matthew in the New Testament, they hated Matthew because they were being taxed into oblivion. I mean, like, do you like your taxes? It's another conversation for another day. But, I mean, the idea is, like, nobody's ever liked taxes. Nobody's like, yes, they're here. And so back then, they were being taxed into oblivion. So Herod was building this empire. He was perceived king of the Jews, did not have any birthright to be there. He was set up there to be a pagan, to kind of make things better for him. He did build the Temple Mount, of which you can still see today. That's what the Dome of the Rock is sitting on, is the, the Temple Mount. It was one of the most major construction projects of the era. But what we see, though, is, is that in the biblical story, the only part that we really know of Herod is that he is king, and the wise men, the magi, come into his kingdom looking for, and you got to remember, who are we talking about? This guy was certifiable. They walk into his palace and they say, hey, King Herod, we have been following a star and we're looking for the new Jewish king. Ouch. I think the only thing that would be like is if, as a man, you would tell your wife, honey, that was good, but my mother's casserole was better. Just stab to the heart, you know? And why would you say something like that? I'm like, bad you don't say something like that. Like, why would they walk up into Herod's palace and say, hey, King Herod, we see that you really like doing this thing. But we're here to find the new guy. And he's, we're just following a star. So, like, this is a cosmic event. And so Herod being the, the schemer and the conniver that he is, of course, we know the story, sent the Magi on. You know, more than likely, the Magi, of course, for not showing up the day of his birth. Jesus was probably between the age of one and three. The Magi go in a dream and it's revealed to them through an angel that they need to escape another way because Herod has bad plans for Jesus and, uh, and all of those things. And of course, then we know the story. What does Herod, what does Herod do? Well, Herod does what every king does, which is either you make God king or you will try to kill his purposes in your life. So Matthew 2, 16 says, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through the prophet of, uh, the pro the Jer prophet, through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. 
He refused to be consoled because they were no more. Now, number one, I, I recognize that some of you are like, bro, it's only like eight days till Christmas. This is the most depressing Christmas message. I get it. I get it. But I, I, I want to I respond to that. Let me volley back to you something for a second. I just wonder sometimes if, and look, I love Christmas. I really do, joking aside, I watch the Hallmark movies with my wife, even though I know exactly what's going to happen. My favorite thing to do is say the line before they say it. It makes me feel so smart. I could have I written these. I mean, I could have written a very C-plus movie. But I love Christmas time. I love the lights and the trees and doing stuff with my kids. But like the first Christmas, the first few years of Christmas, we're surrounded by murder and rampage. And, and I think sometimes why, why I want to talk about this today is because when you don't see yourself a part of the broader story, it goes back to what we talked about in week one, that you begin to highlight and make big things that are really small. Now, look, I know that the problems that you're facing right now, this very moment, whether physical, financial, emotional, spiritual, relational, all of those things are a big deal. And I'm not making light of that, and God's not making light of that. But you make those things too big when you see yourself as the only person in the story, when you see yourself as king. But when we look at the biblical story, that the king of the universe, God in flesh, didn't come when there was a King David on the throne. He didn't come when the way was paved. Like it was easy. I mean, one of the biggest themes of Scripture, we'll talk more about this next week, but one of the biggest themes of Scripture is that everybody who was supposed to recognize him missed him because they were too busy being the ruler of themselves and they had no space for a new king. And I just want to tell you that I know the world is scary and it's so easy to look outside the window, whether it's in our local world, our national world, the world at large, and think, Holy cow, what's going on? I just want to remind you that the first Christmas happened under a pagan, murderous, crazy, lunatic ruler like Herod. God is not scared of our current problems because they're not new problems. That's why we need a bigger story. Your story's not enough. Your family story's not enough. The American story is not enough. The biblical story is the only one that puts us in a place to see, oh, none of this is new. Just kings being kings, bro. Just wicked kings being wicked kings. And what do wicked kings do? They kill, they maim, they rape, they murder, they hurt, and they destroy. There is only one king that this world has ever known that has given himself for ransom instead. And that's the Christmas one. So don't, don't be so consumed, you know? Like, I know it's scary. I know it's scary sometimes. But let's also not glitterize the current Christmas, you know? Because all that stuff is commercial anyway. I mean, Christmas trees ain't been around for like 200 years like they are now. I mean, like so much of the stuff we have now, and I love it. I love it. But let's not forget where the real Christmas came into play. So, I think this story finds itself, this theme rather, let's go back to the theme. This theme in the biblical story I think reaches its, its climax in a a powerful, unique moment that I've never seen put together before. I just feel like the Lord has kind of shown me this over the last few weeks. 
Let's fast forward about 33 years from the birth of Jesus in the time of Herod. Jesus has been arrested. He's been betrayed by a friend. He's been accused. He's had a sham of a trial. And he finds himself in the presence of Pilate, the local ruler of the area, and the Jewish leaders. And with this idea of either God is king or we're going to be king. I want, you to, I want you to look at this. This is so fascinating. John 19, starting at the end of 14. And Pilate said to the people, this is so crazy. Pilate's the only person in the crucifixion narrative that states who Jesus really is. A wicked pagan Roman recognized who Jesus is that, look, here is who? Your king. And they shouted, take him away, take a fey away, crucifying. Why? Because he's either going to be king or you got to kill him. He's either going to be king or you got to kill him. And again, Pilate speaks the truth a second time. Pilate said to them, should I crucify who? Your king. And this sends chills every time I read it because it's not just them who said it. It's every one of us who ever declares ourselves to be king. And they say this. The Jewish leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. God is not our king. This man, Jesus, is not our king. Caesar's our king because Caesar lets us be little kings. And we can run this place how we want. So you either make God king or you will try to kill his purposes in your life. Look, I want to I bring this reality to you for a brief moment. And I can't work out the complexities. It's over my head as well. But this idea of king or kill is such a powerful theme that hear me, it does lead to the death of God. We killed Jesus because of our sin. What is sin? It's our effort to be king. But God is bigger than that. And so that's why when we look at Jesus, we don't look at a failed revolutionary. We see a resurrected God who can take Repentant people who say, I no longer want to be king. I want you to be my king. Now, I want to wrap this up with some application here because I know this is kind of a big story. What does being king look like for a lot of us? That's, that's really the big question here. I've tried to wrap up theology. Here's the theme. Here's the story. Where does it find home in our story? Well, here's just a few examples. Number one, trying to determine your version of good and evil. And again, you need to be super cautious. And I am not speaking to one side of the aisle or other because I'm telling you both are wrong in many of the cases. All right, so listen to me. Every time you hear a politician talk locally, nationally, or in the world, you need to say, is that their version of good and evil, culture's version of good and evil, or the biblical version of good and evil? And you need to check your own heart. Am I picking this up from what I've learned in culture? Or is this what the Bible has taught Christian believers for the last 2,000 years? There, there is no like new Christian theology. We just keep abandoning the old stuff, the right stuff that's been taught for 2,000 years. And we want to make it up as we go. Why? Because our culture is fascinated with trying to determine what is good and evil. 
for ourselves. Another way, choosing your own identity. Choosing your own identity. I'm not just talking about sexual identity, but it certainly includes that because there is no more kingly thing to do to, to look at God and say, I am not who you have told me to be. I am who I decide to be. And that, that way, the only thing you can do is you have to kill the purposes of God in your life to do that. Following your heart is the worst advice that we have given out churches and schools and homes in the last 50 years. It is unbiblical. It is not in Scripture. Scripture says, actually, your heart is deceitful above all things. And I got a real example of this. I'm, I'm being serious. I've, I've always tried to do the right thing. One of the best things that I have learned from my mother is when I was a teenager. And look, I was a pretty good kid. I really was. Like, I just, I just was a pretty good kid. But I would ask her, even though I'd never, like, proven to be distrustworthy, I would go up to her and say, hey, can I do this? She goes, no. I said, why? Don't you trust me? And her answer, always without fail, is no, I don't. I don't trust you. I'm like, well, geez, you know what, though? Look, I'm so thankful for that because I still don't trust myself. Like, I am, I am fully aware, and look, that might shock you, but I am fully aware that given the right opportunity, the right moment, the right weakness, the right, the right, the right mindset, I am capable of, of horrendous evil things. Why? Not because I've done it, because that's what the Bible tells about me, because my heart is deceitful too, and so is yours. Like, some of y'all needed somebody as a kid to say, look, I'm, I'm not going to trust you because I'm your parent. I'm not trusting you. Like, think about it when you were, when you were your kid's age. Should you have been trusted? Somebody in the back yells, no. <laughs> I have a personal revival back there. And look, kids today got stuff like the internet. And I don't know, I feel like I'm ranting. I'm not ranting, but this is so important. Like, stop trusting ourselves. I trust the Jesus in me. I trust the Spirit of God in me as it works itself in and out through me. But left up to my own devices, I am wicked and cruel and cold. And so are you. How do I know? Because that's what human history tells us. That's what the theme of human history is. That given the opportunity, I will always choose my good over yours. I will always choose what I think is good for me and mine, regardless of what it does for you. And you'll do the same unless there's another king. So don't follow your heart. Terrible advice. God is not part of our life. He is either Lord and king over it, or he's not in it at all. Walking in unrepentant sin, not loving your neighbor as yourself, just generally putting yourself first. Those are, those are what kings do, except one. So if you become king of your own life, you will always kill whatever threatens that authority because it must be preserved at all costs. And while we can no longer, because I want y'all to leave, so pastor said we can kill God. No, no. But what you kill, though, is God's purpose, his blessing, his presence, peace, joy, and direction in your life. That's not dead. But as scripture says, his eyes go to and fro, searching for a heart that is his. And so I want to say as Lord, I surrender. And I, I'm going to finish with this, and I'm, and I'm done. I think it's really interesting that Paul in the New Testament every time he introduces himself he doesn't say what we would say Paul BFF of God God's best friend he didn't even say leader in the house of God Paul one of the most educated 
powerful missionaries has ever lived, done more for the Christian church in, in a large sense than probably anybody else, besides Jesus himself, introduced himself, Paul, a slave. That's the language he uses, a servant, a bond slave. Why? Because Paul recognized that when he tried to be king, he was a murderous, wicked man. He was going around killing Christians. But when he saw that Christ is king, he says, I don't even deserve to be called his best friend. We are. We are God's friend. Sometimes I think I need to be reminded that I am God's servant because he's king, not me. And I can never be. And the truth is, I don't want to be. So what I want to do, if you can bow your heads for a moment, I want to close with, sometimes we start to call it a prayer of salvation. But I think more than anything, it is today a prayer of surrender and change of allegiance to a new kind of king. So if you've never done that, or you've been struggling, it's not the words that are magical, it's what you say and believe and know in your heart and how you live when you walk out of this room. That's what matters. You can repeat after me something like this that says, Jesus, I declare you as my king. I desperately and deeply ask for your forgiveness for the so many times I have, and I'm sure will again, have tried to take the authority of king over my life only to wreak havoc on myself and those that I love. I repent of those ways of thinking, that way of living. I pray right now that the Spirit of God, that your Spirit will come and rest in me. That it will, no longer will I be looking inside me for the good that I am. Instead, I will be seeing the good that you are in me. You're changing me. You're sanctifying me, making me righteous. Lead my life as my king and help me be a faithful servant for your kingdom. In the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys stand with us. We're going to close with some worship.